Well, good morning, everyone. It's my pleasure to uh, have the privilege of speaking to you today. I'm not Luke Hershey. I'm not the pastor, but uh, throughout the summer, we occasionally allow the elders to do something or have a guest, and I'm one of those elders that uh, has been allowed the opportunity today. So I'll welcome you as well in the name of our church. From a variety of perspectives, it's been a rough couple of months in the world. Now, I suppose that we could each tell our own story, and we would each describe ups and downs, I'm sure, but just in the things we share as members of the human race, you have to admit that we've seen a few situations recently that are pretty grim. Locally, we've had the horrible events associated with the abduction and the murder of a visiting young scholar. Nationally, there have been at least three mass shootings that took place in the last several weeks in California and Texas and Ohio. Internationally, there are problems everywhere, of course. For Jody and me, the current situation in Hong Kong has been a bit too close to our home, as I have a sister and a brother-in-law, some of you have met them, who live there. We were there a few weeks back and witnessed firsthand the beginning of the protests that are now taking place. And we talked to people about the uncertainty that they feel about a future that is probably going to be much different than what they have now. Now, none of this is to say that there aren't good and happy things happening in the world as well. It just seems that a lot of the news we've been hearing recently has been doom and gloom. <coughs> Well, it's moments like these when people of all beliefs and backgrounds might question, they do question, how God, if he exists, some would say, could allow such evil and misery into a world supposedly created and controlled by him. Do you ever find yourself asking that question? Maybe you've experienced even more personal situations in your life that have provoked uncertainty or fear or grief. Now, I don't mean to approach this in an unkind or a presumptuous way. We who count ourselves as part of God's family should not quickly say to people who are grieving or facing great difficulty that they should not have feelings of grief or uncertainty or fear and should just trust in God. No. Those emotions, grief, fear, or uncertainty, are very real parts of the human experience, and they need to be acknowledged and embraced before we can get on to understand how the situations causing such feelings fit into God's plan. But in fact, God does ask us to trust him. And so it's worth exploring a biblical example of this to get an idea of just how we should approach the difficulties of life. I'd like to explore this today by looking at an event that took place in Jesus's life. It's reported in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John, and it's known as the healing of the official's son. Let me read it from the ESV, and then we'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll tackle what for me is one of those profoundly difficult questions. Why does a loving God allow evil and sadness into our world. Here's the text, starting at verse 46 of chapter 4 of John's Gospel. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and at Capernaum, where there was an official whose son was ill. 
When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that this was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. And this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Would you pray with me now? God bless the reading of these words. Thank you for these words, for we know they come from you. Would you guide me as I speak? Show me the truths that you want considered. Make this not about me or my circumstances, but about the circumstances of each person in this room and about you as well. For, Father, we have each been in places where we, when we're honest, uh, we, we need to admit that we are, have been in places where people hurt, where it doesn't seem fair that we're going through what we're going through. And we want to know, Father, how that fits into your great plan for our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, another way of looking at our question is to ask, why was it that Jesus came into the world anyway? What work was he to do? We know he was to spread a gospel message, but what was that message and what was its work and the work of Jesus? To understand the point of view of the skeptic, let's face it, if all Jesus came into the world to do was to eliminate the situations of life that cause grief, uncertainty, or fear, can't we make a pretty good case that Jesus failed and failed miserably, because those situations have not gone away. Let's try to understand the work that Jesus was to do in the world, in particular, focusing on what the work was, and then considering the urgency of that work, and finally looking at how we might fit in to the work that Jesus was to do. We'll do that looking at an outline of three different points that I hope will be helpful. First of all, the nature of the work Jesus was to do, secondly, the urgency of that work, and finally, our participation in that work. So first, the nature of the work that Jesus was to do. Now, Jesus dealt with the question of what work he was to do in the world in an earlier event recounted in the text that Don McDaniel read to us. It's the story of Jesus' intervention and interaction with the Samaritan woman at the well. There are many interesting things about this story, not the least of which is why he was dealing directly with a woman and a Samaritan woman at that. But I want to focus on the fact that once engaged, the woman presented to Jesus a very real and immediate human situation. On the one hand, she had come to the well to draw water for herself and her family. And on the other hand, Jesus was thirsty and wanted a drink of water. Jesus uses the worldly reality that we need water, and food also, to explain his true purpose for being here. 
The woman was capable of fulfilling the need Jesus had for a drink of water, but Jesus and any human would be thirsty again in the very near future. Jesus, on the other hand, wanted to give to the woman something that would not have to be renewed. It would last for an eternity. He called it living water. He says to the woman in verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, meaning the water from the well. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up for eternal, eternal life. This then was the work that Jesus came to do, to give water that is like a spring welling up to eternal life. Now, of course, water here is being used to describe something much more profound than physical water. As we humans face physical death, we have a need much more significant than the quenching of our thirst. Paul describes our physical death as proof that our character is not sufficient to satisfy God's requirement of righteousness. And to meet that requirement, we need a righteousness that comes only from God. And Jesus came that we might have that righteousness. This is the gospel message we celebrate here in our church and in every Christian church that Jesus' death on the cross atones for or solves the problem of sin that precludes us from the perfect righteousness God requires. His resurrection proves to us that death, the consequence of sin, has been defeated so that eternal life with God is now ours without any work on our part. Now, the connection to the story of the healing of the official's son. The official also has a profound earthly need. His child is dying. He really doesn't care how it's done. He just wants healing for his son. And Jesus grants his request. The child is healed. But look more closely at how it happens. Verse 49, the official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. We learn later in the passage, of course, that in fact the child was healed. It wasn't just that Jesus said it would happen, it actually happened. Note that the official, though, leaves Jesus believing him then, not knowing if the child has been healed. And that's an important part of this story, I think. His belief was based upon the words that Jesus spoke. He did not need to see his healed son in order to believe that it would be so. Now the point of the healing is not to show what Jesus could do, but to show who Jesus was. Jesus did not come to always solve earthly problems like illness, although he often used such things to teach truth about himself. It's like the message he gave the Samaritan woman, that he was not there to provide physical water to quench physical thirst, a thirst that would return quickly after having a drink. No, he was there to solve an eternal need that we have and to do it once and for all. The question I like to ask at this point, it's totally hypothetical and I dream it up, 
But it's interesting, I think. What if Jesus did not say to the official, your son will be healed, but instead said, trust me. We're told that the man believed Jesus and then left, only to find out later that his son had been healed. What if upon returning home, the man learned that his son had died? There's no doubt in my mind that the parents of some of the people killed in the recent mass shootings were Christian, and they were praying to God that their loved one would survive, only to find out later that their child was killed. The parents' prayer was legitimate. The request was real, but the result was different. Did God fail? Let's, face, let's remember that talking to someone at this point about theology is not the way you would minister to someone facing such extreme grief as you would experience at the death of a child. But the fact is, God did not fail. The gospel of Jesus Christ, upon which our church is founded, teaches that we can, in fact, trust him with all things. Further, the measure of Jesus' Jesus's success is not the quenching of my physical thirst, or even the healing of my murdered child. It's the eternal reality of the righteousness that is mine and yours because of what Jesus did on the cross. My earthly problem may not be solved, and that means that some parents who pray for the health of their child nonetheless grieve a premature death. But the eternal problem that sin has caused has been solved, and I can rest in the assurance that my eternity will be spent with God. Before I move on to the second point, let me make one more additional comment about the legitimacy of the grief felt by anyone whose loved one was killed or has been killed. Even Jesus cried at the tomb of Lazarus, knowing full well that his friend would be the beneficiary of the eternal life Jesus made possible and would be with Jesus in heaven. And yet Jesus grieved to the point of tears. Tears are okay. So, point one, the work of Jesus is to make eternal life possible. And that's the message that Jesus wants to share with the world. Our second question is to consider the urgency of that work. Jesus deals with this again in a conversation with his disciples coming on the heels of his interaction with the Samaritan woman. The disciples are worried that Jesus is not eating. Jesus makes it clear that he's not going to let his need for food stand in the way of completing the work that God has given him to do. He uses an example that should be very clear to we who live in central Illinois farm country. Jesus says, do you not say, he's accusing the disciples of saying this, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and the other, another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. So Jesus says to his disciples, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. You see that the fields are white for, not ripe, but white for harvest, and ripe would be okay too. I know what he's talking about. In July, the corn isn't ready. 
As I drove to church today, I headed down Moraine Drive along the cornfield that has been planted near our house. The corn stalks are drying out from the bottom up, and the brown part is about a third of the way up. From that point on, though, the plant is still green, not ready for harvest. But that's not the situation Jesus is describing when he talks about the harvest of souls that await salvation. Jesus is talking about fields full of crop that is white for the, t- for the harvest. We are not months away from harvest when it comes to the work of the gospel. And Jesus is saying that he will not look at souls in need of salvation as a farmer would look at a crop that is four months away from the harvest. Jesus looks at the world and sees souls in need of saving. It's a life and death issue. Understanding that this is his work, the saving of souls, Jesus says time's a-wasting. He need, his need to minister to people in an eternal way will not be put on the back burner in favor of the satisfaction of the mundane, day-to-day need to eat. Now, this attitude of urgency is reflected in the way Jesus approaches the plea of the official whose son is facing death. When asked to save the son, Jesus immediately focuses on the real dilemma. Now, listen to what it is. The real dilemma is the official's need for righteousness that will be acceptable to God, and the same need that everyone around him who was witnessing this, and everyone in this room, the same need we have. In a way, This is completely separate from issues relating to the health of the man's son. We read in verse 47, for example, When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And then Jesus gives the man a sign and a wonder. Not for the purpose of healing his son, as important as that might have been, but for the purpose of showing who Jesus was. Jesus' purpose was not physical, temporary healing. Jesus was concerned about the faith of the official, just as he is concerned about my belief and your belief in who he was and is. The sign of healing was the tool Jesus used to cause the man to believe in him, but it didn't have to happen that way. Knowing that the problem is one of faith, Jesus immediately addresses the need by healing the man's son. There's the urgency that he felt. Same thing could have been accomplished, back to my difficult question, if Jesus had merely said, trust me, to the man, and then allowed the boy to die. It's harder to think about it this way, but the reality that the children of Christians sometimes die, in spite of the prayers of their parents, is proof that this is the case It sometimes happened. And yet we're called upon to trust that Jesus has our best interests in mind. It's hard to understand. It's harder to live through it. Whether or not the man's son lived, the important issue was the man's faith. Jesus cares the same way about your faith and my faith. He asks that we accept what he claimed about himself. And by doing and by the work of his spirit, we have the capability of doing this. So... The work of Jesus is to bring salvation to his people, and it's a very urgent work that he does indeed. He now addresses our third point. How are we to be involved in this process, in this work? He does this in the same dialogue with his disciples. He makes it clear 
that they are to work with him in ministering to the people around him, and we are to do the same with the people who are around us. He chastises his disciples because they are apparently are putting off this work, like the farmer who isn't ready for the harvest, because the corn isn't ready. And when you're talking about real corn, that makes sense. But we're not talking here about real corn. The point is that although it's not necessary for Jesus to work through people to accomplish his gospel mission, it's one of the ways he has chosen to work through us. Jesus says to his disciples, and he says to us, that he cares about each and every soul that we meet throughout our lives. He works through you and me to reach the lost, and he does not want to miss any opportunity we have to tell people of the eternal significance for them of the work that Jesus did on the cross. This isn't so easy, I know. We say that we don't want to be embarrassed by rejection, or we want immediate results and don't see them, or we don't want to waste our time. But Jesus doesn't ask us to be responsible for the results. He only asks that we love our fellow human beings enough that we don't miss the opportunity to share the gospel. Now, it's true that Jesus does care about the issues of this world as well, and we should as well. To be sure, we find in his love care and concern for the earthly needs of his people. We prayed about those in Cyrus's prayer today. He calls us to have love as well and compassion for our fellow human beings. Each of us should be compassionate and passionate in our own way, according to the call God has placed upon us to serve the needs of others and to address the issues of the day that face the world. As a church, though, We will never deviate from the primary mission God has given us, to tell a dying world that it needs what the gospel message offers, salvation made possible by the death of Jesus on the cross. That's why we don't take political positions or deal with many secular issues. We preach and teach the gospel first and foremost. When the gospel impacts the morality of our times, we go there, but never by going beyond what scripture has told us. The work of Jesus Christ to save a dying world eternally. It's an incredibly urgent mission that he has, and we're blessed to be included in his ministry as he works through us to provide for the eternal needs of his people. Yes, bad things happen in this world. Evil exists, and we see and sometimes experience the consequences of that evil. A visiting young scholar is murdered. Mass shootings have and probably will continue to take place. Governments come and go and sometimes abuse the people that they govern. The lives of innocent people are touched in tragic, tragic ways. And we even live with the consequences of our own sin. We can and should work as hard as we can to deal with the worldly problems that exist within our lives, our time, and our culture. But the existence of evil in the world does not reflect God's failure. On the contrary, what it proves is that we, each one of us, in fact need the work God did on the cross. That work has ensured that God's children will be with him for eternity. In that work, we are shown the love God has for us, a love that we, that we can have and use as inspiration for a love that we should have for others. 
it empowers us to deal with the problems of our lives, our time, and our culture. And so in the midst of great tragedy and evil, it is in fact true that we can say to the person who grieves, have hope, and to the person who fears, fear not. And to the person who is uncertain about their future, be assured that God has a perfect plan for your life. May God lead us to understand the work of the gospel and to participate in it when called. And may God lead us to find freedom from anxiety, peace, and joy in the midst of the difficult things that happen in our lives, our time, and our culture. Let's pray. God, would you show us now how you want to reach into the lives of each one of us and show us where in our lives we don't have to be anxious, we don't have to fear, and we can find peace. Father, show us also who you have placed in our paths that need to hear the gospel message that you sent your son to die for us on the cross to atone for our sin that we may have the relationship you intend for us for eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.